Hi, my name is Heather Shorin Yeruso, and this is the Spark Zen Podcast. Thank you for listening. Today, I have the great pleasure of being in conversation with Norman Fisher, a Zen Buddhist priest like myself in the lineage of Suzuki Roshi. He is also the founder of the Everyday Zen Foundation and the author of numerous volumes of poetry and books, including Training and Compassion and The World Could Be Otherwise. The first time Norman and I met was at Tassajara Zen Mountain Center in 2019, when he and his wife, Kathy, who is also a Zen priest, co-led the winter practice period. His most recent book is When You Greet Me, I Bow, Notes and Reflections from a Life in Zen. Thank you, Norman, for being my guest today. Thank you, Heather. It's great to be with you again. It's great to be with you again as well, Norman. Why don't we start with your reading of the koan that the title of the book references, When You Greet Me, I Bow. Yeah, this is in the first, the first essay in the book. And uh, right toward the beginning, I tell this uh, Zen story. A long tongue made rice cakes for a living. But when he met the priest Tianhuang, he left home to follow him. Tianhuang said, be my attendant. From now on, I will teach you the essential Dharma gate. After a year, Long Tan said, when I arrived, you said you would teach me, but so far nothing has happened. Tianhuang said, I've been teaching you all along. Longtan said, what have you been teaching me? And Tian Huang said, when you greet me, I bow. When I sit, you stand beside me. When you bring tea, I receive it from you. Who would have thought that the essential Dharma gate of Zen is bowing to someone when they greet you, receiving tea when it's offered and standing next to each other? In one way, to me, that feels like this huge disappointment <laughs> that this <laughs> ancient tradition filled with wonder and mystery boils down to, to what? What does it boil down to you? Why did you choose this koan as your opening epigraph? Well, you know, uh, Zen literature is full of paradox, and that's what makes it sort of charming and baffling. But I don't think that Zen literature is filled with paradox to be tricky or cute. I think Zen literature is filled with paradox because being alive is actually filled with paradox. So on the one hand, there is nothing to the practice and the living of the Zen life other than just being alive with one another. There's nothing to it more than that. And yet the way that most of us are alive with one another leaves quite a bit out. So on the one hand, there's nothing to it, really. There's no special teaching or special understanding or special esoteric knowledge. And on the other hand, uh, it's completely esoteric in relation to the ordinary way that we think of and live our lives. And, and that's why I think um, Zen is so, and, I, and when I say Zen, I don't just mean Zen, but I mean some kind of spiritual depth in living, why I think it is so really, 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 really relevant right now, because I have a lot of friends who 
uh, really concerned for the world. They've been so brought low, you know, by the pandemic, by the politics uh, in America and all around the world, and now by this uh, really quite unbelievable war in the Ukraine, which is bringing so many uh, ordinary people to harm, right? It's just overwhelming. So people look at this and they think, uh, wow, there's no human future. I, I even doubt the goodness of human beings. There's no way to live. This is not going anywhere good. And there's a kind of a sense of, if you pay, pay attention and you don't distract yourself, the logical conclusion would be to be in, in despair. So you need actually some kind of like bigger spiritual or religious perspective to be able to hold all this honestly and realistically and at the same time see that it is beautiful and worthwhile being alive and beautiful and worthwhile being human and acting for the good as a human being. You, you really can't sustain that perspective without some kind of ongoing uh, spiritual or religious practice, in, in my opinion. So that's the paradox, you know, we're, we're in this living in the same world as everybody else. And at the same time, we're living in quite a different world as Zen practitioners. How do you feel, given what you just said, you with the broad statements, as well as a specific reference to the war in Ukraine? I'm curious about how then, given all these atrocities that keep arising in the world, as you say in the in the book by human beings, right? You and me, human beings uh, causing these atrocities. How then is bowing to someone when they greet you or receiving tea when they offer it to you? What does that address that might be harmful in our society or harmful in our relationships? How is bowing to someone when they greet us? What's the medicine there for what's going on? I think the, the medicine, first of all, I'm not saying that bowing to someone when they greet you uh, is sufficient to address the concerns. Yes, yes, I appreciate that. I didn't mean to just no, make I, it that I, simple. I, I know you weren't saying that. <laughs> right, I mean, there are many things that we need to do, and it depends also on who we are and what our circumstances are and what we can do. But at the same time, it's also the case that to practice caring for each other on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, whenever we greet someone, to care about that person, and to realize that we're not in a contest with that person to see who gets the attention or who gets the recognition. We're, we're, we're not uh, in a competition with that person to see who gets the job or who gets the, who gets the financing. We're, we're there to be alive with that person in identity with that person. And all the time, with every, every moment, this is, this is really the essence of, of the practice, I think, is that every moment, even if there's no person there, the sky is there, and the object that we're picking up and putting down is there, and, and, and the, the, the thing that we're cleaning or the thing that we're repairing is there. So every moment, the, the physical world uh, comes to meet us in the shape of an inanimate object or, or a living being, whether it's a plant or an animal or a human being with whom we can have verbal and emotional communication. 
whatever it is, in, in that moment, we give ourselves to that uh, with uh, a sense of uh, curiosity and, and belonging and compassion. And the way we live, typically, it's part of our human organism and certainly part of our human culture. We're wary of one another. We're disidentifying with one another. You know, what's going on in any war is that one group demonizes the other group and decides that the only thing that makes sense is to destroy that other group and subjugate them. And from a point of view of Dharma, that makes no sense at all. That's a violation of who we really are. So we're trying to practice in such a way that we come to understand who we really are and behave that way. And that's what it is when we greet one another and bow to one another, we're behaving like true human beings who understand our identity with one another. Yeah, this beautiful sentence in the book where you first talk about the intimacy of a handshake, right? There's that physical contact, how we used to greet each other before the pandemic <laughs> right. was often with handshakes and that the origin of that handshake was to show that we had no weapons. So there was, as you say, an absence of aggression. And that's what that intimacy, that gesture is predicated upon. And then you say this about, about bowing. In contrast, by bowing, we are acknowledging a friendliness and respect, but also a distance. A bow expresses our love and respect, but the space between us when we bow also expresses that we understand our aloneness and that we can never assume we understand one another. We meet in the empty space between us, a space charged with openness, silence, and mystery. There's many sentences in this collection of essays that I have underlined. And I really just love, as a writer myself, just love how you phrase this. It's To me, it just sums up life that mm -hmm. So we're not one, not two. We are profoundly connected to sentient and non-sentient beings in the three times. There's this beautiful differentiation. There's Norman Fisher, there's Heather Iruso, or the names that we, we give the multitudes that live within. How do you feel that acknowledging our relationship to each other and everything because we also bow to our cushions in our Zen practice, by acknowledging first our aloneness, that's often something in our modern society that we try to drown out. We have many ways of not feeling that, I would say, loneliness as different from aloneness. So how first can we acknowledge and be with, or how does Zen help us acknowledge and be with our aloneness so that it actually doesn't feel like we're lonely. This is a, a kind of a subtle, but really important point. As I said in the very beginning, there are many paradoxes here. So paradoxes appear to be perplexing, but when, you're, when, when you figure, no, it's just that many things simultaneously are, are occurring in, in re real life. And uh, when you try to think about them, it appears paradoxical, but you live them quite easily. Uh, it's just when you talk about them and think about them that they appear paradoxical. So here, here's a really important paradox. One side is we are all completely alone. And when we say completely alone, what we mean by that is 
the whole world is contained in ourself. In other words, it's not, it's not a, a loneliness of alienation, it's a loneliness of completion. Everything is right here. In, in this moment, you know, I'm, I'm here in California, you're somewhere else, I don't even know where. And, and, and in this moment of me being right here where I am and you being right there where you are, everything is included. We don't need to travel all over the place to include everything. We don't need to know every human being for all human beings to be right here with us in every moment of our human consciousness because every human being is in there in every moment of our human consciousness. So in other words, the one side is I am completely alone, everything included. And the other side is I am completely at all points interconnected and never, never alone. There couldn't be aloneness. Even if I'm at the top of a mountain all by myself, everybody I ever met is there with me. And in every place I've ever been is there with me. So these two things are actually the same thing, that I'm completely alone and that I'm completely interconnected are the same thing. I think the bow expresses that. In other words, uh, it expresses that I'm a whole universe. You're a whole universe. I completely understand you, and I completely have no idea of what you are. And so I bow to you in recognition of that mystery. That's just a, a beautiful example of how Zen practice speaks to me. I love this line of, it's an aloneness of completion, not alienation. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the fine point between the hair's breadth deviation yeah. between loneliness is I feel alienated, mostly yeah. from this body mind. Yeah. And that's how we also then feel alienated from the tree in the courtyard or our Oriyoki bowls or this person who looks different from me or sounds differently. Um, yeah. me and the aloneness of completion the practice at the monastery i've spent seven years at tasahara and i know that you also spent a number of years at tasahara as well as at green gulch farm could you speak a little bit about how when you came to practice zen how perhaps that alienation was transmuted by actually being alone with others in that zendo, we talk about the silent intimacy at a monastery, because you said you showed up with all these huge metaphysical questions and this existential angst as many of us experience um, in our teens and 20s, I believe, or just forever, as long as we're alive, some of us. But I'm curious then, with all these metaphysical questions, how did you feel that they were resolved or alleviated that angst just by sitting alone with others in the zendo and greeting people with a bow. As we do at Tassahara, we actually both bow mm -hmm. to each other as we pass. In a monastery, the main practice and the main experience uh, is, is silence. As you know, most of the hours of the day and during some special retreats, every hour of the day, we're in silence together. We're not speaking to one another. So we're uh, in each other's presence in silence. And, and in the silence, each one uh, is plunged into his or her or their depth. 
And so we're, we're sharing that together wordlessly. And we are each other's world in the silence. And so you can see where there's a kind of whole different level of human relationship when we're not using our words and our identities. It's as if human relationship has to do with each one of us holding up a stick with a mask on the end of the stick. And it's the, it's the masks talking to one another. That's mostly what we call human interaction. Well, in the monastery, there's no stick and there's no mask. It's just sort of the nakedness of what we really are without the words and then without the identities. And, and in that, I think that's a very healing space. And I think that healed, healed my metaphysical questions little by little. Not in my case, you know, I, I haven't, I've had, you know, not so big dramatic breakthroughs or enlightenment experiences, but more like little by little by little. Healing, healing that sense of alienation and metaphysical breach. Now, now I don't, don't get me wrong. I understand that there is a need also for, for sure, for, for human connection and interaction in ordinary ways. And so in the pandemic, it's, don't, don't, don't think that I'm saying that everybody in the pandemic should be perfectly happy to not see anybody for two years. <laughs> well, the context is also different. Context is different. And, 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 you know, to be sure, when we were in the monastery, we were in human presence all the time. We were sitting in the Zendo in a, in a, in a room full of whatever it was, 50 or 60 people every single day for eight hours a day or 10 hours a day, whatever it was. So we had human contact, even though we weren't speaking most of the time. So yes, uh, I think human beings need that. I mean, theoretically, if we were all completely realized Buddhas, I think we could be fine and happy with being by ourselves in the pandemic. And we have had, you know, Zoom and other platforms to be able to interact. So we haven't been completely isolated. And a lot of people, like I had, I was fine during the pandemic. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky I have a partner. So uh, not everybody does, but um, many people were okay during the pandemic because uh, they had a good relationship with themselves and they knew how to take care of themselves, but many people were not, and that's just human nature. So what I'm saying doesn't obviate that, but I think it makes it different. When I'm with myself, I feel I'm uh, in good company, you know, and, and I think that I think that every human being has the capacity to feel that way. I don't need someone else to complete me, but I, but I really appreciate everybody that is in my life fully. And this is getting back just for a moment to this sentence again, uh, where you talk about bowing versus uh, a handshake. You know, you say that we meet in this empty space between us, it's charged with openness and silence and mystery. And if, I could maybe add to that openness, silence, and mystery and space. I feel that when we practice at the monastery, there's all these causes and conditions that make it a lot easier yeah. to experience that. Yeah. Is also within us that space, openness, silence, and mystery is within us. And that is what uh, connects us. Mm -hmm. as, as Dogen says, the wisdom that runs through all things. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and you and I are really lucky people that life made it possible for us to spend multiple years uh, living in a monastery and having that experience, which I'm sure you would agree. I feel this way too, that 
that once you have many years of that kind of experience, uh, it's always inside you. It's always there. It never, it never goes away. Even if you're in a busy life, you're quite uh, aware of that experience all the time. But I want to say that, and this is really important for the people who are listening to us, that um, I think we all actually need to have that. We need to have that experience. But you don't need to go to a monastery to have that experience. Because I think that, although it's a very valuable thing to go to a monastery, I recommend it to everybody, actually. I think it would be a totally different world if every everybody sometime in their lives spent a year or two in a monastery. I think it would be a different world. Yes, imagine if that was compulsory rather than military service. A couple of years of the monastery, a couple of years of civic engagement, yes. volunteering, all supported by the government. Yes. That's right. That, that would be something. Actually, the government could actually do such a thing. This would be a great thing. But, but here's the thing. You, without, even without that, there are session. You know, there are retreats. And you could do, I think, a, a person, it's not out of, out of bounds or out of possibility that a person could do a, a week session every year for many years. And doing a week session every year is not the same as living in a monastery for multiple years. But if you do it year after year after year, you have a similar experience because a, a Zen retreat is just like being in a monastery. It actually is a week of monastic living, literally. I think that to live in the, in the contemporary world with an open heart, but sustainably, you need something like that. You need ongoing practice, but you also need intensive retreats from time to time regularly, not as a special thing that happens once in a while, but something that you, because if it's regular, if you say every year, such and such a week, I go to this particular monastery or temple and I have a retreat, then, then the whole of the year, that's a reference point, that one week. Not just something I did once or I might do again, but no, this is a reference point for my whole life. So I think we actually need something like that in order to keep the heart open, but not be overwhelmed by the world. Yeah, the, the life in a monastery is quite rigorous. Yeah. And... I never would have thought coming from my cushy, comfy, nine to five middle-class life that that rigor would actually help alleviate some of my suffering. Yeah. There is that abstract concept of freedom. Oh, I want the freedom to do this. I want the freedom to do that. I want the freedom to be this way. I would say that that's what we think the essence of the United States is freedom, mm. but we forget about responsibility. <laughs> I feel that placing myself in the monastery where you realize that you're not really in control of anything because every time you try to be in control of something, the schedule, the container continu continues to reduce that <laughs> sense. And then somehow that responsibility just like you're saying, that responsibility, even though you didn't use that word, of being intimate with all these objects that are right in front of us. I'm being responsible to my Oriyoki bowls, the bowls I eat out of as a monk. I'm being responsible to the pot in the kitchen. I'm paying mindful attention to the person who is speaking with me. 
um, paying mindful attention to scrubbing the bathhouse walls. And somehow, I can't, for me, it's, it's a mystery, as you say, that that life of um, lack of freedom, if you will, the snake being in the bamboo pole was what broke me open in a really positive way and helped alleviate a lot of suffering. Mm -hmm. I know there's a lot in there that I just said, but it feels like it's hard to pull out the freedom without talking about responsibility and talk about alleviation of suffering without speaking about the careful attention or intimacy to the body mind and extending that out to every um, object that we encounter, whether that object is sentient or non-sentient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that when you when you do practice for a long time and it really gets into your bloodstream, like you're saying, it, it really changes actually what you think is freedom and what you think is responsibility. Because the usual way we look at that is those are sort of somewhat opposites, right? Freedom means I can do whatever I want and I, I, I'm free as a bird, you know, no, no, no obligations, no responsibilities. I, I feel like doing this, I do that. I feel like doing this, I do that, I'm free. And then responsibility is the opposite. Responsibility is something of a burden. It's not a bad word because yes, we want to be responsible, but responsibility is a little bit grave and a little bit you know, difficult and a little bit of a burden. But I think that what we discover is that freedom and responsibility are exactly the same thing. The, the freedom to uh, do whatever I want, whenever I want, in whatever way I want to do it, is actually not freedom, it's tyranny. It's the self and its desires tyrannizing our heart. And the truth of the matter is that what I really want to do is not whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it. What I really want to do is be in my life completely every moment. And that's responsibility, to be fully responsive to whatever is there in this moment. I think the relief that you feel in the monastery, as you described it, is, wow, I've got over myself. As you and I know, what's really hard about the monastery is the beginning. When you first get there, once you get past that pain of all the things you're quote unquote deprived of and see that actually you're given so much and once you forget about being deprived of all these little things you think you depend on and just are willing to meet every moment you're free then you're really free you have to get over that hump but once you do there's nothing actually more happy than waking up early in the morning to meditate and meditating all day long and eating simple meals and going to bed at night. To me, this is the happiest life because you're really free and light when you're living that life. You say trusting the process of practice is this slow erosion of the ego, yeah, right. the egoic preferences and how not getting everything that I want and how not having this ultimate freedom where I get to do whatever I want. So this, this word intimacy, not only is it the theme of your first section of the book and also the title of the book, uh, there's an intimacy beyond words and the uh, ability to know who somebody is by their footfalls or by seeing their shoes outside of the bathhouse Mm -hmm. That enlivening experience, as you say about materialism, one of the essays of the book, you talk about 
how Zen isn't about the sacredness that is special and private and your inner life. Zen helps us to experience the sacredness of materiality. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not about, oh, the sacred exists somewhere else. It's not my Oriochi bowls. It's not this person right in front of me. It's not even me, perhaps. There's some special heather that has to arise in order for there to be a sense of sacredness. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about how practicing Zen over all these years has helped enliven your experience of the sacredness in everyday life? I think you're right that 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 is one of the special features of the way spirituality appears in Zen. So many of the Zen stories are are about this. That I mean, I've argued in uh, the world could be otherwise that religion and spirituality is essentially an act of the imagination. That the human imagination proposes reality. And in, in, in a way that accounts for the world's religions. So all the mythology and the colorful uh, descriptions of heaven and sacredness and the kingdom of God and all this, the enlightenment and the Buddha realms in the Mahayana Sutras is all uh, a human imaginative projection of, of reality. And, and in Zen, that all of that is honored and recognized and it's said to be right here in every moment of ordinary materiality. That's the burden of many of the Zen stories, you know. What is the Buddha? Shitstick. Right here in the toilet paper that we're wiping ourselves with is all of the sacred realms. Right here in every moment of our connection to this physical world is all the realms of sacredness. So, you know, in Zen, one line that's always repeated is this very body is Buddha. If we really understand our body, it's the Buddha body. When we sit in meditation, that's what we're doing. We're breathing into this actual physical body, this actual physical breath, and we see that it is not what it appears to be, that it is what it appears to be, but also beyond what it appears to be at the same time. Another another paradox, like you said at the beginning, it's all about paradox. So yeah, um, rather than thinking, oh, this trivial physical world, forget about it. I'm going. I'm going to the. I'm going to the sacred cathedral with the high sweeping ceilings. No, no, it's everywhere. It's not in the cathedral. It is in the cathedral, but it's no more in the cathedral than it is. You know, right here at my desk right here on the trail when I'm hiking, right here in my boots themselves. My boots are Buddha's boots. So I think in particular, more than any other tradition that I'm aware of, this is front and center in, in the Zen tradition. And a lot of the paradox and a lot of the humor of the Zen stories, you know, come from this point because you, we notice over and over and over again, you know, I don't really believe that. I really think this this human physical world is like sort of something that is a, it's a pain. It can give me pleasure, yes, but it's it's expensive, it's breaking down all the time, you know, it's really a pain. But uh, saying over and over again, no, 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 don't look somewhere else. It's right here, mm-hmm. right all the time in this very physical body, in this very physical world. Everything is right here, all realms. My experience of Catholicism was that split, right? Spirit versus body. Yeah. And that's a doctrine of dualism. That, that constant sense that I need to overcome something. I need to, yeah. I need to punish myself or 
somehow being harangued by these natural desires or that this body is not worthy. So what a relief for me that with Zen, that, that they are not seen as opposites. Mm-hmm. The pervasiveness of this God, of God through yeah. the body, that it's not um, that it's not separate from who we are. And even what I remember of what I was taught about Jesus, he said, the kingdom of heaven is within, and I tell you, ye are gods. Even though later on the, the church didn't emphasize that particular uh, thing, but yes, and, and you're right. I think that it's healing immediately, just this thought that the person that I am is not something that needs to be thrown away or is not judged by the sacredness on high, but rather is itself already sacred. I'm, I'm actually uh, okay and sacred and, and more than okay, just the way I am. Uh, and I don't need to look on high for the judgment that comes down on me and therefore mistrust my own body and my own mind and my own heart. Yeah. And I think that that uh, certainly Buddhism in general and, and Zen, especially in particular, does look at it that way. I, I remember the first time I really appreciated Buddhism very early on in my practice, I was studying some book about Buddhism. And, and I remember the first noble truth, all conditioned existence is suffering. And I remember suddenly realizing, wait, if that's right, then this is not my fault. It's not my fault that I'm a wreck and that everything is upside down for me. It's not my fault. It's not a problem that I have. Everybody else is fine, but I have this problem. No, it's our problem. It's still a problem, but it's not my problem. It's not my fault. It's just something built into being human and it's something I have to address, but it makes a big difference not to feel like there's something wrong with me. And so I think that Buddhism in general and Zen in particular is telling you, no, there's not something wrong with you. There's something to be done in our lives to overcome human suffering, but it's not your problem. It's the problem. And that immediately is healing. It's not that you have sinned or that you are something wrong. It's that this is the problem to be dealt with. When we're speaking about the first noble truth of suffering, that there is suffering in the world. And I really appreciate what you said about as soon as I realize that this is the human condition, that already alleviated some of your sense of alienation, that I'm in this by myself. That also, I feel like, was an experience for me, too. I sought out. Buddhism, because my Catholic tradition didn't seem to provide any salvation, any relief from the suffering. So there was not a path like there is in Buddhism Mm -hmm. for the cessation of suffering. Mm -hmm. And maybe we could just spend a moment or two, a few minutes speaking about how acknowledging that we're suffering in this community, whether it's a monastery or just a, any community, it doesn't have to be in a monastery, obviously, because I feel like just that acknowledgement, as you were saying, already brings some relief and how the teachings of the Buddha really specifically address alleviation of suffering in this lifetime, not, not taking up the metaphysical 
conversations about what happens after death, mm-hmm. but just right here in this moment, feeling a liberation from arising suffering. To be on a path to bring peace to suffering and to understand suffering. I mean, conventionally, you know, if I'm suffering, there's something wrong with me. I don't want to admit it because uh, it's kind of shameful, right, to suffer. It's a failing. And, and in most of the world, we maintain the happy smile and we're fine. How are you doing? Fine. I'm fine. So it's a kind of a, a different way of looking at things to, to know that every human being you ever see is suffering one way or the other. Sometimes they're suffering a lot and they don't even know they're suffering. But I think once you really understand human suffering and its causes and roots, you see that everybody is suffering, whether they know it or not. And and then you also, as you say, in the practice, it's a path toward uh, really embracing suffering without embarrassment and without feeling guilty about it or without, without feeling responsible for it really embracing the pervasiveness of suffering and understanding that really embracing suffering and having a path to practice with suffering is itself the alleviation of the suffering. So it's not as if when we practice Buddha Dharma, as, as just as well as I do, it's not as if we have a smiley face every minute and we never have difficulty, but rather we know how to live with difficulty without uh, making it into something that is toxic but rather a normal part of being human. We don't talk about the cessation of suffering so much as we talk about the transformation of suffering into love. This expansive loving kindness. You have this beautiful paragraph in your book where you express this beautiful sentiment about love. The fact is that there is no way that love can ever be narrow or exclusive there is a tendency to see love in a limited way, as if loving or being loyal to one person or group means we cannot love or be loyal to another. But this is a perversion of love's real nature. Love's salient characteristic is that it is unlimited. It starts locally, but always seeks to find through the local, the universal. If that natural process is subverted, love becomes perverted. It must either grow or go sour. It can't be reduced or hemmed in. I think that sense of love being limited has a lot to do with our societies holding on to this romantic love. You have to find that lost part of your soul. You have to reunite with that other half of your soul in order to feel complete in the world. Could you speak a little bit about how Zen helps us with uh, the falling away of some of those false barriers that's, that keep us feeling separate, even though we are profoundly connected? First of all, I think romantic love is not incompatible with what we're saying. Society does emphasize romantic love in a way that makes romantic love way more difficult. There is this phenomenon, it's biologically programmed. We fall in love with another human being and and that love becomes really a powerful experience and it becomes all pervasive and and there's enormous focus on on that one person which i think is natural and normal and obviously a very beautiful thing when it happens but from the point of view of practice the idea is that we understand we appreciate that experience and we understand that that is the experience of our finding by 
just some kind of beautiful luck or karma or whatever you want to call it, a person that we can focus that on for this period of time. But the purpose of that focus is to widen it out. And as we, anybody who's been like you and me in a relationship for a while, you know that that feeling develops and grows and changes. It's not that the, the initial period of falling in love, as we say, it becomes different. It becomes an avenue actually for expanding and increasing the love from our perspective of our practice. That the point of that is not that these two people exclusively are loving each other, but that through their love together, they're spreading the love all around. I think that our practice really does help us to understand the suffering inherent in all forms of exclusivity. When I validate this group, and denigrate that group, I might think that that's a great idea because I don't like these other guys. The truth of the matter is that it's suffering. It's suffering for me and my group, and it's certainly suffering for the excluded group. So uh, practice shows us that suffering over and over and over again until we see that we don't want that suffering. We don't want to limit love in that way. My practice shows me that when my love is unlimited, there's happiness for everyone. I was very surprised in the book when you say that you believe in the benevolent protection of God. What do you mean by God? What's your sense about God? Another way of saying that same thing would be to say, reality is my friend. I don't need to be in a battle with reality. I've been on a Melville kick. And I just reread Moby Dick a little while ago, and, and Ahab is in a battle with reality. That's what that's about. The human being rises up and says, screw reality. I don't like it, and I'm not going to sit down for it. And so I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to defeat this sort of white whale, which is reality itself. And of course, it's a tragedy because you can't do that. Well, what I mean by the benevolence of God and reality is your friend is the opposite of that. Rather than going out and doing battle with reality, I mean, you know, Ahab is a great character. It's a kind of like noble and amazing human thing that a human being would have the hubris to do battle with reality. That's one of the things that human beings do, and it's kind of amazing. But actually, from a religious or spiritual point of view, it's the opposite. No, I feel like reality is my friend. Reality is on my side. And even though I completely understand that reality is going to swallow up my body and mind and make it disappear, that's not, uh, to me, a problem. I don't protest against that because in, in that happening, and I cooperate with that, reality remains my friend because it might be that giving up my body and dying might be something like really beautiful and fulfilling rather than scary. So uh, benevolence of God means the benevolence of reality, the benevolence of what is the beauty and power of what is. Of course, can be easy to say, right? Reality is my friend if you're not in the middle of a war, in a bunker with shells bombarding even, you. Even then, reality is your friend. You have to see it that way in the end. I think you do. Otherwise, if you don't see reality as your friend, you say every instance has its own special virtue. Yeah. So if we don't, experience that special virtue, do we end up being harpooned to the great white whale of reality and going down to the, the depths with the object of our enmity? 
Yeah, we're consumed with bitterness, as Ahab is. We're consumed with bitterness. So that happens when you accept reality as your friend, however difficult that reality may be. You, rather than being bitter about it and, and doing horrific things out of your bitterness. For me, practicing Zen was removing the sense of an external being mm-hmm. who was judging me, who was in control of my fate, who I, fe- I felt limited by sure. and scrutinized by this, mm-hmm. this external being called God, who, as you mentioned in your essay, spoke with a male baritone voice in those recordings. And in my imagination was always some white haired man sitting in the cloud somewhere. Of course, both of our perspectives of God undoubtedly would have changed as we got older and practiced different uh, religion. I love how you say this in your book. You say it's easy to God encounter through encountering your own body breath and mind. And could you speak a little bit about that? When I use the word God, I'm not talking about an external being. And and I think that any real theological exploration will show you that no theology speaks about God as an external freestanding being. That's impossible because by definition, what we mean by a being is a being is something that comes into being and passes out of being. A being is the opposite of non-being, and every being has non-being. So if God is eternal, then God is not a being. God cannot be an external being. Like you just pointed out, the tremendous disadvantage of theistic religions. It seems to propose a judging, controlling entity outside this world, and that can be toxic on a lot of levels. But theistic religions have the advantage of giving us some kind of object of affection. So if I have the idea of God, I can talk to God. I can pray to God. I can feel God's benevolence. I can feel God's support. Non-theistic religions get rid of that very bad disadvantage, but may have less of the advantageous ability to have affection. So I think that, that theistic religions tend to have a more emotional valence, and non-theistic religions tend to have a more spiritual or metaphysical valence, although both are present in both cases. Buddhists all over the world throughout history, less in the West than in the East, have been praying to Buddhas forever going to the temple and offering incense and saying, please, Buddha, help my daughter pass her exams. Please, Buddha, take care of my mom who just died. And then they have all kinds of different Buddhas that they pray to and so on and so on. So actually, prayer is really a part of Buddhism, just as much as it is uh, in theistic religions. For me, the, the Roman Catholic paradigm of there's this external being who's going to offer you salvation and never found any salvation there. And then there's this religion, faith tradition called Buddhism that doesn't posit uh, external being, even though people are praying, right? Yeah, there is not a positing of an external being. Like you mentioned in, in the book, Suzuki Roshi does mention God in his talks. Yeah. One of his statements that sticks with me is, each moment we are facing God. 
things yeah. as it is and the sacredness of things that is not this profane mundane things yeah. as it is the deep profound connection that runs through everything that is everything i i think i use the the, the, the word god in pretty much the same way suzuki roshi does so i'd like to just um ask you if you would be open to reading a few poems for us. Sure. Thank you for asking me. I'll read, I'll read a poem from uh, a recent book called The Museum of Capitalism. Let me be, or let there be, let's all be crowned with radiance. This little luminosity pile atop our skulls melting into the fuzzy thought balloons, fanning out into the space all round, sharing each her light with the others, this one brightness just off the top of my head, my natural royalty complacently at peace with itself, font of all sexual power, desire of the ancient hills toward which all bends and twists in its anxiety. And everything that is knows its name and calls it out to all the other names that collide in their incomprehensibility, a poetic drop-dead trope beyond which nothing more is going to be said. Hence this continuous commotion, these vague words I'm speaking or not speaking, grunting possibly, singing possibly, waving arms while moaning, because the light shoots through them, its glorious rainbow memories, I seem to be constructing selves out of anything I can find at hand. Every nominal insurrection has its doppelganger and every intervention its cantankerous declension. So I'm aware that in saying what's only true or trying to, I'm merely shaving the edges off of things you already knew, having been thrown in that direction earlier under duress. I'm in no danger now of ascending the light. The light, the sparks don't catch anything. Thank you, Norman, for giving voice to that mystery, to that space, to that wisdom that runs through all things. And may we all experience each other and ourselves as moments of God. Thank you. It was really fun. I really appreciate it. It's very sweet to have this time together. Thank you for listening to the Spark Zen Podcast. I hope you found this conversation illuminating and engaging. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to my Spark Zen Substack newsletter and follow me on Twitter at Spark Zen. The opening and closing music is courtesy of my friend Jeffrey Cantu and Alexis Georgopoulos. 